Good morning. <laughs> it is great to be with you. I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm glad for those of you who are joining us online. You know, this is not the text I would have started out 2021 with. Uh, it's not the text I would have picked for myself. But this, this is the text that God did pick for us this morning. And he does have a message for us. And part of that, part of that message is a message of judgment. But within the message of judgment, there's also a message of hope. So let's pray and let's ask God to open up our hearts through his spirit to receive what he has for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to this place, that we can join online to worship you in all of your majesty and power, greatness and holiness, Lord. We thank you that we can worship you. Lord, we also thank you that you have given us your word, that you have revealed to us the things that we need to know to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to you. Lord, as I mentioned, these are difficult words, but they're words that have a message for us. So Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive what you have to say to us today. Help any prejudices or biases or previous understandings to be put away. But Lord, help us to hear from you. And Lord, in response to hearing from you, I pray that your spirit would mold us and shape us and conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Make us more like him. That is our prayer this morning. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. So I'd like to start this morning by sharing a bit of my recollections of my great aunt Teddy and my great aunt Lucy. Now my great aunt Teddy and my great aunt Lucy were similar in many ways. They were both godly women. They both loved and served Jesus. They were committed to their families they also wore funny clothes. They smelled a bit off. And they gave these sloppy wet kisses that would just kind of suck and encompass in your whole cheek. You know what I mean? Like, you, like if you had a great aunt, like it's the way that all great aunts seem to kiss. And it was a kiss that I tried to avoid as much as possible. They had a lot of similarities. But Aunt Teddy and Aunt Lucy also had some differences. I remember Aunt Teddy. Aunt Teddy was always smiling. She was welcoming. She was kind. Aunt Teddy was always so gracious. She was a lot of fun. I remember when I was like eight or nine years old, I went to visit Aunt Teddy. She lived in, a, in Chicago and she lived in a row house that was near downtown Chicago. And she had a very special day planned for my visit. Aunt Teddy took me to the Museum of Science and Industry. Can you imagine a better place for an eight or nine-year-old boy than the Museum of Science and Industry? It was like this incredible day. We went to the Museum of Science and Industry. We, she bought me treats while we were there. She even let me do that machine where you put a penny in and you crank it and the penny comes out flat and it costs you 25 cents for a crushed penny. Like that was, this was a fun day. 
I remember on the way back from Chicago, we got caught in this long traffic jam and Aunt Teddy was even happy in the traffic jam. I wasn't, but Aunt Teddy was. It's getting crazy the things you remember, isn't it? We got back to her house and she made me dinner. After dinner, she gave me ice cream. She let me stay up late. We just had so much fun. That was Aunt Teddy. Aunt Lucy, on the other hand, was a bit different. Aunt Lucy was strict. She was firm. Aunt Lucy was the disciplinarian. She had a lot of rules. I remember she had rules about washing her hands. She had rules about how you were to sit at the dinner table. She had rules about make sure you stay close to the house when you go out. She had this rule about peanut butter and butter. Like you could eat peanut, you could eat peanut butter, but if you ate peanut butter, you couldn't eat butter at the same time. And if you ate butter, you couldn't eat peanut butter at the same time. Like I have no, I don't even have any rhyme or reason for that rule, but it was a rule she had. She also had this rule, don't pick the grapefruit from the tree in the backyard. You see, Aunt Lucy lived in Florida and I had this opportunity to visit her about the same age. She lived there with Uncle Pete. And I remember wanting to visit Florida, but not being so sure I wanted to visit Aunt Lucy because of all these rules. But that rule, don't pick the grapefruit from the tree in the backyard. Who tells an eight or nine-year-old that? Really? You're picking up what I'm saying, aren't you? Because you know what I did, don't you? I went and I picked the grapefruit from the tree. And Aunt Lucy reprimanded me, rightfully so. But I think Aunt Teddy would have let it go. Aunt Teddy and Aunt Lucy were similar, but they were different. They were different because they had a different bent. Now remember what I said about both of them, about their similarities. They both loved God. They both served Jesus. For all intents and purposes, they were both wonderful people, but they were different. You see, Aunt Teddy had a bent towards grace and mercy. And Aunt Lucy had a bent towards truth and justice. And what I mean by that is Aunt Teddy's first response to any given situation or any person was usually grace, and mercy. And Aunt Lucy's response to any given person or situation was usually truth and justice. You know what I mean, don't you? We're all bent one way or another, either bent towards grace and mercy or bent towards truth and justice. As I'm talking, I hope you're thinking about how you're bent. Or maybe how, if you're married, how your spouse is bent. Or maybe how your parents or your siblings are bent. And if you're a child, you know how your parents are bent. Because when you want something, you go to the parent who is bent towards grace and mercy. Because they're more likely to say yes. We're all bent one way or another. And just as an aside... If you're bent towards grace and mercy, God is likely working on you 
to make you respond in and with more truth and justice. And if you are bent towards truth and justice, God is likely working on you, making you more gracious and merciful. That's because we're all bent one way or the other. There's only one person who does not have a bent and who responds perfectly every time. Look at how the Apostle John describes Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14. This is John's description of Jesus as he introduces us to him. The Word, that's a reference to Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Now look at this line, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Jesus is the only person who is full of grace and full of truth so that he responds appropriately every time. When grace is appropriate, Jesus responds with grace and mercy. When truth is appropriate, Jesus responds with truth and justice. Jesus is not bent one way or the other. He is full of grace and he is full of truth. Now for us, we like the idea of Jesus being full of grace and mercy because in our lives, we always want to be treated with grace and mercy. When I picked the grapefruit, I wanted to be treated with grace and mercy. I did not want to be treated with truth and justice because truth and justice often leads to judgment and we do not like judgment. Jesus is full of grace and mercy and he is also full of truth and justice. I know that sermons about judgment are not often the most popular sermons. But we are entering and looking at this text this morning because we need to understand, we need to know that not only is Jesus full of grace and mercy, but he is also full of truth and justice. So if you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter eight? Now, maybe you're already there, but if you're not, please grab a Bible. It would be in the rack in front of you and it's on page 996. If you're at home and you're watching, I'd encourage you to grab a Bible. Today, we're jumping back into our study of the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, there are three sets of judgments. There are the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. All three of these judgments take place in the future. They take place in the future during the great tribulation. 
A number of weeks ago, in Revelation chapter 6, we looked at the first set or series of judgments. We looked at the seal judgments. And if you'll recall, Jesus was the one, the only one, who was worthy to break open the seals to initiate these judgments. Then in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, we read that as the seventh seal is opened, there is silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And we learned that that's the last time that there will be silence in heaven. And it was kind of like a moment of silence, if you will, for all the times we've prayed and God has seemed silent in response to our prayers. And Mark shared with us that in a very real way, that that silence was the silence before the storm. And then three weeks ago, Jim shared with us from Revelation chapter eight and he shared with us that our prayers go to heaven and our prayers decorate heaven as an aroma to God and our prayers, all the prayers throughout all of history reside in heaven as this sweet aroma to God and they await the time when God is going to answer them. And today we see that God answers these prayers we're going to look at the second set of judgments, at the trumpet judgments. These trumpet judgments are a part of God's response to the prayers of his people. People who for decades, hundreds of years, millennia, have cried out to God for justice, have cried out to God for deliverance. God is responding to the prayers of his people. The prayers of his people have moved him to action. And here we see God responding to prayers for justice and for deliverance. Now let's look, let's dig into these trumpet judgments. But before we do, three things. First, sometimes when we come to the book of Revelation, we think the book of Revelation is difficult to interpret. And that may be the case. It may be the case that Revelation is difficult to interpret. I will give you that. But I do not think that's the biggest issue that we have when we come to the book of Revelation. I don't think the biggest issue is an issue of interpretation. I think the biggest issue when we come to the book of Revelation is that it is hard to believe. It's hard to actually believe that these things are going to happen in the future. It's hard to actually believe that these judgments are actually going to take place. So first this morning, I want you to know that the judgments that we are going to look at are real. They are going to happen. They are going to take place. Second, Leshek and Anya read the text for us this morning. And thank you to Leshek and Anya for reading the text. Because they read the text, I am not going to go through the text word by word. I am going to go through the judgments and give a summary of what's happening so that we can understand the judgments as they're taking place. And then third and finally, this is difficult. This is hard. It's heavy. As we go through these, these judgments, you will feel the heaviness of these judgments. It is likely to make you feel uncomfortable. It's understandable. This is difficult stuff. So let's look at the judgments. The first trumpet, look at verse seven. 
When the first angel sounds his trumpet, the world, look what the world experiences, hail and fire mixed with blood. The result is one third of the earth, one third of the world's trees are burned up in this plague. And it says all of the grass is consumed. This first trumpet judgment introduces an unbelievable ecological disaster. Think about this. Look at what it says. One third of the earth, one third of the trees, and all of the grass is burned up. This is devastation. Think about the air quality. Think about the destruction. This is a horrible, horrible disaster. The second trumpet, verse eight. A second angel sounds a trumpet. Look at the result. It's something that, something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turns to blood, a third of the ships sink, and a third of ocean life dies. The first judgment attacks the land. This second judgment attacks the seas and the oceans. The third trumpet. The third trumpet judgment is much like the second, except it affects the world's freshwater, lakes and rivers instead of oceans and seas. Look at verse 10. A great star blazing like a torch falls from the sky and poisons a third of the water supply. This star is even given a name. The name is wormwood. And a wormwood is a shrub-like plant noted for its extreme bitterness and poisonous qualities. Look at verse 11. We read that many, many people die from poisonous water. The fourth trumpet. The fourth of the seventh trumpet brings about changes in the sky. Verse 12. A third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. Now maybe the first three judgments could be explained away as natural disasters. But when we come to this this fourth trumpet judgment, it's pretty clear to me that these are supernatural occurrences. This one is clearly a supernatural occurrence. One third of the sun is struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. Darkness covers a third of everything. Then following the fourth trumpet judgment, look at verse 13. John notes a special warning that comes from an eagle flying through the air. This eagle cries out with a loud voice saying, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Think about this. If the first four trumpet blasts, if the first four trumpet judgments were not severe enough, were not destructive enough, did not create enough disaster, the angel is crying out, whoa, 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 wait for the next three because the next three are even more intense and are even more destructive. The fifth trumpet. Chapter nine, beginning in verse one. The fifth trumpet, which is now also referred to as the first woe, results in a terrifying plague of demonic locusts. 
They attack and they torture those who do not believe in Jesus. It says they attack and they torture them for five months. This plague begins with a star falling from heaven. Now, this is not a physical star. The star is most likely a fallen angel. The star is referred to as he. And he, it says, is given the key to the shaft of the abyss. The abyss is mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation, and it refers to the prison for demons. This star opens up the abyss, releasing a horde of locusts. It says, with power like that of scorpions, the locusts, interestingly, do not touch the plant life of earth. They don't destroy the plant life of earth. Rather, look what it says, they had straight for those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. The locusts are not allowed to kill anyone. They are only allowed to torture people and they are allowed to torture people for five months. And the torture is so severe that everyone wishes they could die. But look what it says in verse six. It says, death will elude them. Look at verse 11. These demonic locusts have a king The king is the angel of the abyss. It says in Hebrew, his name is Abaddon, and in Greek, it's Apollyon, and this means destroyer. Do you have any idea who this angel might be? Are you with me, people? Satan. Satan. This angel may actually be Satan. Look at how the locusts themselves are described, unusually described, but quite terrifying. They look like horses prepared for battle. They wear something like crowns of gold and their faces are vaguely human. They have hair like women's hair and teeth like lion's teeth. They have something like iron breastplates and their wings sound like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. Like scorpions, they have stingers in their tails. Now this this description has prompted many interpretations. Some people say it's a vision of helicopters. Others say it's barbarian warriors. Some others say it's a satanically empowered army. Some even think that these are actual creatures from the pits of hell who are released upon the inhabitants of the earth. And we're not gonna actually know until this actually happens, but suffice it to say the description is terrifying. The sixth trumpet, beginning in verse 12. The sixth trumpet, which is also the second woe, involves the onslaught of another demonic horde. Once the sixth trumpet sounds, a voice from the altar of God calls for the release of four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. These four angels have been kept in captivity for this very purpose, to wreak havoc during the great tribulation. These four wicked angels lead a supernatural cavalry of thousands upon thousands of warriors. If you do the math, it is 200 million warriors strong, this cavalry, this army. These riders have breastplates, fiery red, dark blue, and yellow. Their horses, look what it says, have the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur, and their tails were like snakes. 
It says they kill with their mouths and with their tails. And a third of all the people on earth are killed. This is terrifying. It is overwhelmingly terrifying. And we haven't even got to the seventh trumpet judgment. We're going to look at that in a few weeks. But I will say for me, this morning, six is enough. These six trumpet judgments are real and they are coming in the future. And throughout our study of the book of Revelation, we have said that Revelation gives us a glimpse into the future, which we want to look at to inform our present, to give us insight into our present lives so that we can more faithfully serve Jesus. So this morning, I have three insights and two responses to this text. Three insights and two responses. The first insight, God is sovereign. God is in control. And in these verses, we see that God is the Lord over all of creation and all of human history. He is the one who is in control. He is the one who is calling the shots. When I was younger, I was about 13 or 14, I think, I believe, and I read a lot of books about the end times. I read a lot of books about the Great Tribulation. Some of you will remember the author, Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey wrote a number of books about the Great Tribulation and what was coming. And I had those books kind of set on my nightstand for a period of time. And every night I'd read them. And every single night I would go to bed afraid to death. I was so scared. I was so full of fear about what was, com what was coming. And I was full of fear because I had a misunderstanding about the future. You see, I wrongly thought that Satan was in control during the end times. I wrongly thought that Satan was in control during the great tribulation. And he is not in control. God is in control because God is sovereign. God is the Lord over all creation and over all of human history. Think with me for a minute. In Revelation chapter six, who is it that opens up the seal judgments to begin these judgments during the great tribulation? Who opens the seals? Jesus opens the seals. In Revelation chapter seven, who is it that is holding back the angels at the four corners of the earth to prevent the winds of destruction from blowing? Who is holding them back? God is holding them back. He is holding back the destruction. When we come here to Revelation chapter eight and we look at these judgments, who is blowing the trumpets? Who are blowing the trumpets? Who? Angels. Angels are blowing the trumpets. Whose angels are blowing the trumpets? God's angels are blowing the trumpets. Who instructed the angels to blow the trumpets? 
God instructed the angels to blow the trumpets. You understand God is in control. God is sovereign. God is calling all of the shots. Look at this defense of God's sovereignty from Isaiah chapter 46. You can check out the whole chapter later, but I'd just like to read some of the verses for you this morning. This is God speaking to you. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you who I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. I don't know what struggle you are facing right now in your life. I don't know what chaos may exist in your life right now, but what I do know is God is in control. He is sovereign and he is not only sovereign in and for the future, he is sovereign in the present and he is sovereign in your circumstances. He is in control and he is the Lord of all creation. He is the Lord of all of human history. And if you claim Jesus, he is the Lord of your life. And he is in control. Insight number one, God is sovereign. He is in control. Insight number two, God takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. He judges evil, wickedness, and all types of sin. Now, when I picked the grapefruit, I may have thought to myself, it's not such a big deal. It's just a grapefruit. Aunt Aunt Teddy may have let it go. Aunt Lucy chose not to let it go because it was wrong. Picking the grapefruit was wrong. And I needed to be held to account. And that is what Aunt Lucy did. Some of you, as you listen to the story, you may have thought to yourself, hey, that's not such a big deal. He was nine. He just picked the grapefruit. That's typically what we all think when we do something wrong. No matter what we do wrong, we typically think to ourselves, it's just a grapefruit. It's not that big a deal. But here's the thing. God takes sin seriously. And whether it's just a grapefruit or any other sin or bad choice we make, it is offensive to God. And God is not pleased because he takes sin seriously. If I were to poll you right now, if I were to poll you on how you feel after the reading of these judgments, I would guess that most of you would say you're a bit uncomfortable. Judgment does that to us. Judgment makes us a bit uncomfortable. 
We kind of think to ourselves, well, that doesn't seem to be the God of love and compassion. And so we get uncomfortable. You want to know why it makes us uncomfortable? It makes us uncomfortable because we don't take sin seriously enough. Because if we took sin seriously, we would not be so uncomfortable with these judgments. And we would not be so uncomfortable with the judgment in our own lives that God brings about. Look at how Eugene Peterson puts it. Eugene Peterson's a pastor and he's an author. Look what he writes. We do everything we can to make light of judgment. We use every stratagem we can find to avoid dealing with the consequences of sin. But God will not let us off. He will not indulge our inattention. He will be taken seriously. In a pause between trumpet blasts, an eagle cries its warning. However practiced we become at tuning out sounds that we do not want to hear, including the sound of God's displeasure at sin, God finds new ways to penetrate our defensive deafness. The eagle cry catches us off guard. My friends, the eagle is crying this morning. Our sin is offensive to God and God takes it seriously. God is a God of grace and of mercy and I do not want to diminish that truth at all. It is fully true. But God is also a God of truth and justice. And if you are sitting here this morning and you are thinking to yourself, well, my God wouldn't actually do that. My God's a God of love. Let me tell you, your thinking is misguided because what you are doing is you are placing too much emphasis on the God of grace and mercy and not recognizing that God is also a God of truth and justice. And in order to eliminate sin, God must judge sin, evilness, and wickedness. Judgment leads to the elimination of the sin. God is going to do that in the future to eliminate sin and evil and wickedness. And God judges in the present to eliminate sin, evilness, and wickedness in your life and in my life. God is sovereign, he is in control. God is serious about sin. He judges sin, evilness, and wickedness. And the third insight, in the midst of judgment, God is still merciful. In the midst of judgment, God is still merciful. Think about this with me for a minute. Did you catch it as I read through the trumpet judgments? As we looked through the trumpet judgments, there was judgment, but the judgment was to one third. One third was referenced in almost every single one of the judgments. One third of the earth was affected. One third of the skies were affected. One third of the people affected. The judgment, yes, was severe, but it was also limited. It was also limited. God did not fully judge the inhabitants of the earth. 
Think about it from Revelation chapter seven. In Revelation chapter seven, we saw a great multitude of people, an innumerable number of people, of every tribe, of every nation, of every tongue, standing before the throne of God and worshiping. These were people that experienced some of the judgment. They saw the judgment during the great tribulation and they came to believe in Jesus because of the judgment. You see, that's what judgment does. Judgment calls us to repentance. Judgment calls us to seek out Jesus. It's one of the intents that God has for judgment. In God's judgment, we see the might, we see the power, we see the majesty, we see the inescapability of God, and we ask ourselves, what must I do to be saved? which leads to our last two points responses. What must I do to be saved? The first thing you must do is repent. Repent, which means with a soft heart, with a contrite heart, turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness and then run as fast as you can in the opposite direction from your sin. Repent. And if you are here and you do not know Jesus, repent. And if you are here and you know Jesus and you are engaged in sin, please repent. Look at the last two verses of Revelation chapter nine. These may be the two saddest verses in all of the Bible. Chapter nine, verses 20 and 21. Following the judgments. The rest of mankind who were not yet killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Can you imagine? All these trumpet judgments, all this destruction, and all this devastation all around them, all of the judgments and all of the warnings, and these people still do not repent. Their hearts are hard, and they continue to engage in the things that will eventually destroy them. Does that describe you this morning? Are you continuing to engage in the thing that is going to eventually destroy you? My friends, soften your hearts and repent. Turn from the sin. Run from the sin and go to Jesus. Second, Response, share the gospel. Share the good news of Jesus Christ. These judgments are coming. I don't know when they're coming. I don't know so soon. I don't know how far off, but they are coming. 
And each one of you, I'm assuming that most of you listening to me are followers of Jesus. Most of you believe and have received his saving grace. But most of you also have family, you have friends, you have neighbors, you have coworkers, you have people that you go to school with who are lost who do not know Jesus. And unless they come to Jesus, they are going to experience these judgments and worse. And you have the truth that will set them free. You have the message that will give them life. And too many times we just hold on to what we have. We hold on to the peace that we have through Jesus and we don't offer it to the people around us who are dying and who are going to experience the torture of these judgments. My friends, every one of you, your life has purpose and it has meaning and it is not fixing a plumbing tube. It is not selling stock. It is not buying stock. It is not building a business. It is not any of those things. The purpose of your life in whatever situation you are in, in whatever context God has placed you is to share the good news of Jesus Christ so that your family, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, other students aren't going to experience the judgments that are coming in the future. Tell them. Tell them that Jesus is the way. Tell them that Jesus is the truth and tell them that Jesus is the life. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.